0: Hey everybody welcome into the back room i'm andy austroy we have a very interesting guest for you today josh mankowitz from dateline we'll get to josh in a second but first thank you for tuning in today we appreciate you listening and we'd love to hear your comments so email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media and we'll read some feedback next time and if you like the podcast please follow or subscribe and rate and review and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode Josh Mankiewicz, for almost 30 years, he has been a correspondent for Dateline NBC, the longest-running primetime show in NBC history, and has reported on a variety of stories, including the 25th anniversary of the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase, the Jonestown massacre, and John Benet Ramsey investigation. Since 2020, he's reported for the number one podcast's Dateline, Missing in America, Motive for Murder, and Internal Affairs. Josh, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Everyone knows and loves you from Dateline. But mm, I don't want to start there. Not the murderers. <laughs> well, I want to start a little bit before Dateline. Take me back to your childhood. What kind of kid were you? Was true crime interesting to you, or was this
1: something that developed later on in life? Yeah, I was interested. As a kid, I watched Dragnet, I watched Mannix, I watched The Mod Squad. I was a child of 1960s uh, crime TV at a time when there weren't any prohibitions about how many people you could shoot during an hour. I remember my mom being very concerned about the amount of crime dramas that I was watching, but look where it led. So yeah, she had nothing to complain about as it turned out. What's with the crime?
0: What's with all the crime, Joshy?
1: Yeah, which is great because she was from San Bernardino, but it's good that you have her sounding like she was from Brooklyn. Um, (laughs) uh, I was born in Brooklyn, so I I can't help myself. So there you go. Uh, So um, and my mom, whose family was all Mormon, uh, was more Jewish than most Jewish mothers. Uh, So I, I was always interested in this. I started off covering politics when I uh, while I was in, in, in college, I got a job on the ABC news assignment desk in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and then after I graduated, uh, they put me on Capitol Hill as a kind of a sort of eyes and ears off air reporter. And I covered the U S house for about three years, which was pretty fascinating. Mm. And then I was, a then I was a correspondent for ABC for, and then first in, in local news in D.C. and then at the network. And then, uh, and I was a political reporter in New York and L.A., and I did a bunch of campaigns for for ABC. And I must say that I thought at the time that, um, uh, that, you know, being like White House correspondent or something eventually, or, you know, host of one of the Sunday shows was the sort of pinnacle where you could go. It was the thing I should be aspiring to. But I was wrong, because the thing that we're doing now connects with people in a way that standard politics doesn't. Also, there are thousands and thousands of people covering politics in this country, many of them better at it than I was. But there's hardly anybody doing this, certainly not at the length that we're doing it and the resources that we have. Um, There's just not a lot of competition out there in this. And also, you're going to tell me that you know, the way men treat women, the way husbands and wives treat each other, and uh, the way the criminal justice system operates differently for different people, that that's not part of our politics. I'm going to tell you, you're missing something mm-hmm. because it is.
0: And you come from a political but background. Your dad was press secretary to
1: RFK. He was. He was then. He ran the McGovern campaign mm-hmm. and he was a syndicated columnist. And yeah, he was, uh, he kind of went back and forth between politics and journalism in a way that's, I think, a little harder to do now. But, uh, but he, uh, yeah, he was he was in politics for a long time, and so I sort of saw it happening up close because mm-hmm. of him, and that got me interested in it. But I was also interested in journalism because of him. He was no one remembers this, but he was the he was a local anchor in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Uh, so I saw a local news then, which I thought was a lot of fun, and which I still think is a lot of fun. He was in the
0: thick of it the night of the assassination, and so in terms of your own consciousness of horrible things and crime. How much did that play into it when you were younger?
1: The, the the crime story that most affected me was not RFK, it was JFK. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was old enough to recognize that, you know, the president had been killed, that there was some mystery surrounding it, and that there wasn't really a solution, that there hadn't really been an answer that people accepted. And then, as, you know, sort of time went on, Robert Kennedy... In the years after John Kennedy died, first when he was attorney general and then when he was senator from New York, the the people came to him with all their assassination conspiracy theories. And there were a lot of people out there. And you got to remember this was just a few years after Dallas. So a lot of people were talking about it, thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people had theories that uh, plausible might not be the right word, but certainly conceivable. Um, And Bobby did not want to deal with any of that. He didn't want to talk to those people, so he designated someone on his staff to be the repository of all those people who came in saying, "I know who killed your husband. I know. I, I know who killed your, your your brother. I know what happened," and that was my dad. Mm-hmm. And so, so these people, some of whom were, I don't know, a little nutty, but some of them also maybe on the right track from what we later learned, would come over to our house, and they would come over with these giant blown up photos of Dealey Plaza and the grassy knoll. Mm. And they would put them like in our backyard and then we'd stand back and they would say, okay, what is that? What does that look like to you? And my dad would say a gun. And my mom would say a tree limb. (laughs) And so I saw all of this when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. That certainly was the, was the beginning of me being exposed to sort of, you know, the world of, of, Of true crime and the rabbit holes that you can go down in it, but on such
0: a grand, sensational scale. Like it wasn't like you you witnessed like the next door neighbor get hit by a
1: car. That was, yeah. No, this was the story everybody knew. Yeah, and then later in 1978, when I was covering Capitol Hill, I covered the House Assassinations Committee, which investigated uh, Dr. King's killing and also JFK. And some of the people that had been in our living room. We're testifying. And so what did you study in college? I was a sociology major for reasons which I couldn't tell you today. But I was a very charismatic professor, and I was kind of drawn to her. She was very sharp. Mm. I think that had something to do with
0: it. So you never had any aspirations to do social work? I
1: would say that, you know, journalism, if it's done right, is public service. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was always pretty interested in this. I I, I was a very nerdy kid and weirdly i grew into a kind of nerdy adult and i was uh, i watched the evening news every night growing up i mean at the dinner table like we watched walter cronkite mm-hmm. and then he would say that's the way it is and then we would all talk about it for a half hour mm-hmm. and we were not we were silent i mean uh, during that newscast we watched everything mm-hmm. and i remember thinking at the time that the correspondents had interesting jobs so it's not shocking that I was interested in that. And also, you know, a lot of people in my family have been in journalism. My dad was a journalist before he was in politics. My grandfather was a, a print reporter in Baltimore and in New York before he became a screenwriter. It's, it's, uh, there's a few of them in our family. I'm curious to know, from your perspective, where is the
0: business of journalism today versus when you were a young
1: person watching Cronkite. You know, journalism is both better and worse than it used to be. There's, like, terrible things have happened to legacy journalism. I mean, the L.A. Times laying off people, the Washington Post laying off people, mm-hmm. the New York Times, almost the only major organization like that that seems to be doing well, maybe mm-hmm. the Journal is too. But it's, I mean, definitely, like, papers in every city mm-hmm. The evening papers got wiped out by TV news and now morning papers are getting wiped out by by the internet and everything else. The amount of information that flows out there has never been greater. The amount of, of phony information that flows out there has never been greater. The interest in checking that information seems to be less than there used to be. At the same time, many more stories are getting told that otherwise wouldn't have been told. You know, 25 years ago, let's only go back a little way. Let's only go back to the beginning of this century. Um, the tremendous surge of uh, crime against uh, indigenous women Mm -hmm. wasn't even recognized or reported anywhere. Today, people are talking about it. Those stories get some coverage. Um, You know, black women in this country are, I think, there's 6.5% of the country, of the population, but there's some giant percentage of the missing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Nobody was talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, People who are journalists now look a lot more like the audience than they used to, Mm -hmm. uh, than used to be the case. So, I mean, I think there's probably some, there's certainly some encouraging things. Uh, Certainly there are places online that do wonderful work. I mean, I think, you know, I think Axios and The Atlantic and The the, the Beast, and and I I think all of that's, you know, uh, greatly to journalism's credit. But look, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a different business than the one I joined. And TV news um, is not where newspapers are now, but it's not where it was when I started either. I mean, we had bureaus in every foreign capital. You know, we the the networks, not not we NBC, but everybody did. And now they don't. Mm. Now they're kind of out of that business. And uh, you know, does does the public suffer for it? Yeah, no question.
0: Well, I guess the advent of the internet and the speed with which news needs to get out there now and the competition to be first, you know, one could just flip on all the president's men and watch Ben Bradley and Woodward and Bernstein and get a sense, a real flavor for how the news business operated 50 years ago and the attention to detail and the attention to sourcing and fact-checking. And that's what makes me sad, that like that kind of journalism,
1: um, for the no, most part, seems to have suffered greatly. Yeah, no, it has suffered. I mean, that, that kind of journalism has taken a beating. Now, you still see great, elaborately, deeply reported sourced stories mm-hmm. in, in major dailies and online, and, and and more power to them. But, yeah, that, that kind of journalism is under attack because the kind of journalism that, you know, that uh, gets a lot of eyeballs now is not necessarily that, mm-hmm. and a lot of clicks. Mm-hmm. So.
0: hmm Back to true crime. You touched on it a little bit before. What do you think is at the root of America's fascination with this genre? It was always popular, but in the (laughs) last decade, two decades, it seems to have exploded almost to the point where, like, the streamers now, like HBO and Netflix, like, so much of the content that they're curating Hmm? is all about, you know, docu series
1: and crime series. Yep. Uh, There's a lot. True Detective Magazine. Which was sort of the modern beginning of crime journalism. That was first published in 1924, so that'd be a hundred years. So this is not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, true Detective, I think, as a magazine, doesn't exist anymore. It went away. That it came back online. I'm not sure if it's still around. That that HBO series is kind of, you know, based on not on the magazine, but on the idea of the of the magazine that mm-hmm. that it was different different true crime stories. You know, I think it's a lot of things that, that's driven this. First of all, you know, we live in a world in which very few things work the way they're supposed to. Like there's too many people ahead of you on the expressway, there's mm-hmm. too many people in line ahead of you at Starbucks, and then they you know, you get your drink wrong and you know, I mean it's it's you know, life's full of irritating things now, right? Nowhere to park. But uh I said three pumps uh, of pumpkin, not two. Right? I mean, like right. am like are you deaf? Uh So I think that our audience likes it on Friday nights, where for two hours, things work the way they're supposed to. Mm. And that scoundrel gets punished. People like seeing scoundrels punished. Um, I think that's part of it. It, The true crime audience, uh, our true crime audience, I think is tipped mostly towards women for a lot of reasons. Uh, Dateline is not as much about the crime as it is about the relationships that produce the crime. I mean, we could find bloodier crimes, but we don't do a lot of serial killers. We're not doing um, a lot of uh, uh, sex crimes or things where children are victims. Uh, these are usually, uh, Dateline stories are usually stories about people who have never committed crimes before, mm-hmm. but now they've decided to kill their spouse because they don't want to pay alimony or they want to marry somebody else, or they think that this is the way out of their problems, or they want the insurance. And you know, women are so often on the on the uh, receiving end of the domestic violence. That's sort of in the backdrop of almost every Dateline story that we tell. It's in there somewhere. Sometimes it's years back there, but it's it's frequently there. Women are much more likely to talk to each other about their dating relationships and their married relationships, their relationships with men, uh, than they are than men are with each other. You know, like men. Do not have a lot of conversations with their friends in which they say, "Okay, when she says this, what does she really mean by that?" Like we don't, we don't ask that question. Are you, we're saying, what, no are you suggesting we we're not deep? I am suggesting that. Uh, You're right. And uh, women are also on the, uh, uh, unfortunately, are constantly bumping up against a criminal justice system mm-hmm. that was built by and for white men and doesn't serve their needs very well at all. And that's one reason why you've got this bigger female than male audience in true crime. But partly it's that, you know, look, the other thing about true crime, which is, is, you know, sort of a, you know, Bob's your uncle answer is good stories. Well told, find an audience. Sure. Uh, People like hearing a great yarn and like the story I'm telling uh, next on Dateline it's a great story Mm -hmm. that's 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 one of the things about it that that made us want to do it and then there's some other things too Mm
0: -hmm. that's coming up this friday yeah yeah friday
1: february 9th um any details you can give without spoiling sure it's a uh it's a story of a uh, woman who was killed uh a few years ago um in orange county uh, Mm the south of los angeles um she uh she was killed when she opened a package at, at her uh, at her workplace and a bomb went off and it blew her literally to bits mm. um they found pieces of her all over the place and she was no longer those pieces were not connected to each other and so uh they delved into what turned out to be her sort of um complicated social life in which she was dating a, 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 a dating a bunch of different guys or interested in a bunch of different guys and trying to sort of figure out, you know, which was the best, um, uh, which was the best way to go for her. She was also married at the time, uh, unclear as to what her husband knew, didn't know, or thought about this at the time. And so there was a sort of a a assembling of the puzzle pieces, both literally and metaphorically to, by, um, uh, by Orange County sheriffs and by the FBI, because this originally came out, came in as a possible terrorism case uh, to figure out what had happened. Mm-hmm. And so this is a story both about that investigation, which is pretty interesting. And it's about some of the relationships involved in it. And then at another level, it's about a question that everybody is going to want to ask themselves, which is what are you going to put up with from the person that you're involved with? Like, It's hard to say no to anybody. Mm. Like we're told to be polite in this country, right? It's particularly hard to say no to somebody that you love and that you believe loves you. Um, So that's a question that we're sort of asking in this dateline, which is uh, how much is too much? When do you say, okay, I'm not in anymore? Mm. I I know you you may be the right person, but I'm not in anymore. Mm. And that's a tough question to answer. Mm. Well, we'll look forward to that. So you mentioned
0: before that the the fascination with true crime is that people like to see things wrap up in in the right way, the bad guys get justice in the end. To me the the, the true crime television shows are are not that dissimilar from the kind of movies we've loved to see over the years where there's a happy sure. ending, where the, you know some of the most popular films of all time are are crime dramas, m- murder mysteries, things like that. But I think what's interesting about the, the a show like Dateline is that it's not fake. It's real. It's real people, real stories. And, and you yeah, may know right. these people, you know.
1: And, and look, I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, unlike some of our competitors, um, we're not hiring actors. Mm-hmm. We're not building sets. We're not doing recreations. We're, and we're not interviewing people who were not involved in the crime but who will give you a good interview. We interview uh, the prosecutor, not one who's good on camera. We interviewed the guy who prosecuted this case, or the, the woman who was the lead detective, not somebody who's better looking. Right. This is about reality. It's about the facts. So the other thing we do, of course, within that framework is we don't say to people, all right, here's a story about a guy who was accused of killing his wife, and he was actually convicted. But then after he was convicted, it turned out it was the next door neighbor. Now stick around for the next hour and 59 minutes. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. We talk about what a great marriage they had Mm -hmm. and then how something happened to his wife and then suspicion went on him and he said it wasn't him and then he got convicted anyway. And then lo and behold, it turned out there was a case against somebody else. So, I mean, we're going to lay that out, but we're not saying that anybody was a suspect who wasn't a suspect. We can't do that. And we can't say that anybody was charged when they weren't. And if somebody was charged and the charges were dropped, we have to say that too. Right. I mean, we are we are married to the facts here. It would be a lot more fun if we could massage the story a little bit mm-hmm. to make it come out, ex- you know, exactly the way we want. But that's not the way it works. Right. What is the
0: process for finding the stories you do?
1: Well, we read the papers all over the country every day. Um, we've split up the country into all these different zones, and different people have responsibility for checking the websites of all those newspapers. Um. So the guy that does Florida, like, has a particularly skewed view of the world, right? Because, uh, like, those, those stories are crazy. Um, but, you know, somebody else is, like, doing the Dakotas and Montana, you know? Uh, so um, that's one way we find them is we hear about these stories and we start making calls right away. A lot of times local stations call us and they say, uh, I don't know how this is going to come out. But this woman's missing, and it looks very suspicious, and her husband is acting really weirdly. Now, that's all we know right now. So then we'll start sort of assembling things and trying to reach out to people. Now, cops and prosecutors usually won't talk with you mm-hmm. until the the case, whatever it is, is solved and adjudicated.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, usually somebody has to be locked up, or at least the verdict has to be rendered. could be acquittal, but it has to be the case has to have reached its end um, before they will talk because they don't want to be accused of sort of uh, prejudicing the jury. So generally, we have to wait for them, but we don't have to wait for the defense attorney, the friends of the victim, uh, witnesses, and, and other people who are involved in the investigation, like maybe you know a local podcaster, or a reporter, or somebody who covered it from the beginning. And sometimes, of course, during that period of time, if you're lucky, you can get the defendant, whoever he or she is, and uh, you know because maybe they're not in custody or they're still being investigated or they're out on bond if they've been arrested, and then they can sort of tell that story from their point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's sort of how it happens. Is we you know we and uh, I said we local stations call us. So do police departments. So do prosecutors mm-hmm. and so do defense attorneys.
0: Is there any data that you look at that says oh you know our viewers like more of the rural crime stories or the, you know, teenagers leaving uh-huh. a mall at night and get kidnapped or urban stuff, or is it just, it depends on the the story, the individual story.
1: The characteristics, the characteristics of the story, I mean, the, the, those sort of internal demographics, if there is a study, they've never shown it to me. Uh, the stories that work the best are stories in which it's sort of like the law and order template, like, right. you know, You find the body at the beginning, and then they start doing the investigation, and it looks like it's this guy. And then, wait, it can't be that guy because he has an alibi. So maybe it's that guy. That makes a little bit more sense. Maybe it's this person. Oh, no, wait, it's this woman who hated her and uh, sent her those threatening letters. Wait, she's got an alibi, too. And then it turns out it's the next door neighbor. We didn't see that coming. Good night. Right. That's, That's the That's the one that works the best. Now, obviously, that's not every story. Mm -hmm. uh, But stories in which there is some arc uh, are the the ones that work the best, in which we can sort of keep the audience guessing as we let it unfold. Stories in which the obvious suspect, it turns out to be the guilty party, and they were the only suspect. That's a very tough story to tell because there's no suspense. And, you know, two hours is a long time with one suspect. Right. You know, as a viewer, I'm
0: also fascinated by some of the things I see that happen over and over again, like like you mentioned the business partner. I always wondered, like, if you hate your partner and you decide to kill your partner, don't you know you're going
1: down? <laughs> like, just- You'd think. Right? You'd think. I mean, like, some of these people, many of our murderers believe that they are smarter than everybody else and that they will commit this crime, they will get away with it, Um And when the police come and say, did you do this? They'll say, no, I didn't. And that'll be the end of it, right? The police won't ask again. They won't keep investigating. They'll believe you. Um, I don't think people realize how hard it is to move around, live your life, do anything, buy a tarp and a shovel and some quicklime and not. Have a record of that somewhere, either video or walking, digital the Walmart or, you know, cameras.
0: Like people just don't yeah. think I they mean, can like, go buy all yeah. this
1: rope and
0: whatever, and Walmart right. cameras
1: aren't gonna get it. Right. Your 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 the apps on your phone are gonna track you. If you leave your phone at home, mm-hmm. um uh they'll be able to know some things. If you turn your phone off for the first time in five years during the three hours the murder was committed, that's gonna look suspicious too. I mean it's much harder to get away with a murder than people think it is. I mean, a few years ago, I, I was uh, interviewing a guy through a, a pane of glass. Uh, he was in the lockup down in San Diego because he had been um, uh, convicted of trying to kill his wife with a pipe bomb, and uh, he got caught because on his uh, his browsing history at work, he'd gone to a website called like How to Kill Your Wife with a Pipe Bomb, <laughs> and so he was he was under arrest. And uh not a bright move. And I and I said to him, uh he was a church deacon, by the way. Mm, Of Uh, course. And I yeah, and I said to him um through the glass, Did you ever think about just getting a divorce? Or erasing your search history? Yeah, and he was like, Yeah, I should have thought of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, like (laughs) I like what makes the, the the thing that continually amazes me when we do these stories, one is that people think they're going to get away with it. It's bare. I mean, like, like the people who get away with it almost always get away with it in some accidental way that they didn't see coming. Like the evidence gets lost or the person who had the, who had the great witness account, they die, but not because of the murderer. They die like because they get hit by a bus, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or the evidence gets misplaced. Uh, that's, those are the those sort of like accidental serendipitous things are reasons why a lot of people get away with things because like the police are pretty good at figuring out whether mm-hmm. or not you're lying mm-hmm. and it, once they and rightly and wrongly I mean the one reason we have wrongfully incarcerated people is for this same reason which is when the police lock onto you they tend to stay on you mm-hmm. uh, and and if you didn't do it sometimes uh, disaster uh, results from that but if you did do it. They generally don't give up. And one of the things, you know, Dateline's always been kind of about the best in police work and not the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've certainly done some wrongfully convicted stories, but uh, generally our stories are about the guys and women who just sort of like don't want to let the case go and take the file home at night and take it on vacation. And their family's like, Jesus, can you please give it a rest with this? And they're like, no, I can't. So those are the. You know, those are the cases that we do. Joseph Wambaugh, who was a, 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 a sergeant lieutenant with uh, with LAPD and who used to write in the evenings, wrote a bunch of crime novels um, in the 60s about the LAPD. He used to say that the stories that he liked the best were not the ones about the stories in which the cops work on the cases, but the stories where the cases work on the cops. And that's the kind of story that we like to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, because th- those are the ones that that end the, up being as compelling for the audience as they are for the investigators, right, like the dogged detective who won't give up. Yeah, don't can't can't stop. To family, wants to stop, you know. Right, right. Would love to stop, but can't stop. You the, know, the shows, family the,
0: saying to him, you know, the episodes that I love yeah. the most are when there's a cop investigating the death of like a college. Girl, and he has a college student daughter mm-hmm. and just is so emotionally mm-hmm. attached to the story that he wants to solve this crime so badly for the family because it's so close to home. But you know, the, the interesting thing is, I was talking to uh, Dr. Michael Badden once, and I said, Why do these people keep doing this stuff? They think they're going to get away with it. Like, they're not very smart. And he goes, Most of them do. I mean, that's just a lot of people do his opinion, he, but cops. He thinks a lot of people, say, most people, get away with murder.
1: You know, there's no way to know. Cops yeah. say all the time, we only catch the smart ones. We don't catch the smart ones, right? You right. know, you know, we yeah. catch the guy who you know stupidly left his DNA at the scene right. somehow, you know, or right. forgot that he, you know, parked in a place right under a security camera and you can read his, uh, you well, can that, read his license that, plate. I mean, you know. speaking
0: of the dumb ones, another thing I, I love the nine one one calls. Because you can almost always pick out the 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 guilty is some yeah. dude who's like, I just got, I got got home. I found my wife, and, and you know you know I was out bowling with my friends, which I do every Tuesday night. I'm never home on Tuesday. Like right. it's like, dude, yeah, you're like, giving the alibi, like you're, fake alibi away yeah, right now. Yeah, you're,
1: and you're 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 front loading that a little too quickly. Yeah, a friend of mine and I have a running joke about that, in which we same thing, which is like, my wife's missing. I've checked the wood chipper, and she's not there, so you check <laughs> everywhere else. Uh, uh, but then there's also know, the guys I mean, who slip it,
0: up, and they say, yeah. like, you know, she's lying on her belly. She's been shot. You're like, well,
1: how do you know if she's lying on her belly, if she's yeah. been shot in the belly? So so I did a story in Nyack, New York, a couple of years ago, in which uh, uh, Nyack's a city that, like did not get a lot of murders. And this woman calls, um, calls 911, and she says... I just found my mom. She's dead at the bottom of the stairs. I think she must have been carrying a knife down the stairs. And the cat must have tripped her, and she fell and stabbed herself. And then I think maybe she got up again, and the cat, then she fell again and stabbed herself a couple of times. I pulled the knife out. So you're going to find my fingerprints and DNA on the knife. By the way, my... My mom is worth millions of dollars, mm. but this is not the way I wanted to get my inheritance of course. Not. she says all this to the officers uh, uh within the first like hour after her mom's body was found uh and the c- cops are like, "Wait, just a second, wait, <laughs> wait, slow down a second I'm <laughs> and the whole, time, the, cat, the, the whole time the cat the whole time the cat in the background was going,
0: "Meow, meow, meow, meow yeah well, not me exonerate yeah. herself
1: uh. Right. So they're like, uh, they're like, just a second, let me get down. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I missed your latest incriminating detail. Could you go back over that again? Right. So she says, Peggy says all this stuff that, that, uh, that that makes her to the cops sound like not just a, a suspect. Cause she's going to be a suspect anyway. Right. She's, she's the heir of all that money, but the suspect, like, like it, like it, it fits. And, uh, uh, and then of course it turns out at the end of our story she had absolutely nothing to do with it and what she said at the time she actually did believe mm-hmm. she did think the cat had tripped her mom she did pull the knife out i guess hoping to save her mom's life um and uh, and she also realized in that moment wow i'm going to get a lot of money yeah um and she was not responsible wow. um here's who was responsible the cat the woman who was the woman <laughs> that would be good uh who was responsible was the woman who was married to the brother the the brother of the woman who found the body so the daughter finds it and it was her brother's wife her sister-in-law who thought that if the mom died uh the brother and the daughter and the woman who found the body would inherit a lot, millions equally and then if she divorced that guy she would get millions mm-hmm. and it was all about getting an inheritance to her husband so she could divorce her husband and money. make some money that way. And Peggy, who told that crazy story to the police, which no one believed, turned out to be telling the 100% truth. Mm, that's crazy.
0: How much is money yeah.
1: behind a lot of a lot of
0: this, a lot of murders? It's
1: it's behind a lot of stuff. Mm. I mean, it's behind a lot of them. I mean, a lot of people think like I want that insurance money. Um, uh, and sometimes money's behind it in in other ways. Like um, I have made a lot of money. I'm divorcing you, and I do not want to give you any of my money in alimony. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill you, and then I will be off the hook for alimony. You will not be calling me, whining about how I haven't sent you any alimony. Um, And as one guy said um, uh, that we did a story about, I think I'll do better uh, as a widower than I would as a divorced man. Well, that sounds like
0: a brilliant strategy because we all know that the yeah. the, the spouse is the last person they look at, right? Right. Yeah. No, yeah. That,
1: that did not work out for him.
0: So, when you find stories and then you start making calls, are you ever surprised that the people are willing to participate?
1: Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'm. Sometimes people participate even when it's maybe not in there. Uh, long-term best interest. Why do you they know, frequently, do that?
0: I have a very complicated relationship with true crime. My late wife uh, was murdered in 2006. And it was wow, a big, I didn't know that. Big sensational story. She was an actor and a filmmaker. She made the movie Waitress with Kerry Russell. And so I, I've walked in those shoes. I've been the suspect. I also I had a, like a, a history with true crime as as a as a fan, and I, you know, I'm still a, 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 a watcher of, of true crime. But um, But you were also
1: a participant. But I was also a
0: participant. So, And I've I've always wondered when I watch, because some of the episodes, there is some logical reason. Either you're trying to get a message out or there's something important that needs to be out in the public. But sometimes I watch an episode and I'm like, why are these people doing this?
1: What is the point of them doing it? You know, sometimes we can persuade families to speak because of this truth, which is you're family member your loved one who died they got a little bit of coverage in your local paper and Mm -hmm. maybe the local news Mm -hmm. did about a minute on it or something but but the story of their life and what happened and what went wrong in that marriage and that hasn't really been told and people Mm -hmm. don't really know anything about them and we can tell that story over to a great big audience over a long period of time that is is definitely persuasive to Mm -hmm. people because like like that story's not getting told in a lot of cases unless they're the person involved is pretty well known mm-hmm. um, or it's a huge case. And usually it isn't a huge case. I mean, most of the stories we do done are not most of the stories we do are not well known outside the area where we we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes the uh, people who are accused uh, want to talk with us because they want to explain their way out of it. Mm-hmm. Usually their attorneys will tell them don't do it. Sometimes they listen to their attorneys. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes their attorneys want them to do it because they think, like, the more my, you know, the more my client, Joe, goes out there and says, this is crazy, I love my wife, I could never hurt her, I had nothing to do with this, the more chance there is that that's going to eventually penetrate on some level to people who might be in the jury pool someday. We need that story to be sort of just out there mm-hmm. in the in the ether. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some people do it because they um, they got a story to tell. Like, they want to say... And then frequently they come in with an agenda. I mean, the, the interview that, that I do, they, they will at one point say, now, look, here's the thing I really want to say, you know, I told her to stay away from him right. everybody told her, but there was no, you know, convincing her or, you know, we all knew that guy was bad news or we knew, you know, something, um, or we didn't know, you right. know, I mean, right. you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, we were. We were blameless. We mm-hmm. we welcomed him into our house, but it never occurred to us that 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 he was a killer. And people people mm-hmm. want to do these interviews in part to either absolve themselves of responsibility sometimes, or make the case that somebody else is guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the first part of your answer I find really interesting, and I I didn't think of it think of it from that perspective. I made a, a, a film about my late wife. It's on HBO. It's called Adrian. But what you're saying is there are people who don't have the ability to perhaps do that. And so this is an opportunity for them to tell the world who their sister was, who their brother was, to yeah. get that person's life out there and humanize them. You know, I made my film because I wanted to humanize her as more than just a, uh, a murder victim. And so it, it makes perfect sense that there are people who are just still grieving and still mourning and still feeling like somebody important was taken away from not just them but from the world and they want to tell the world who that person was
1: and he or she is yeah. more than just a murder victim and they frequently feel and you may have felt this way too that the coverage of the murder didn't really capture who the victim was right. it did a pretty good job of capturing the story of the investigation mm-hmm. and the crime but didn't tell you enough you the viewer people who didn't know the view didn't tell you enough about that person mm-hmm. and uh, that is one of the things that we offer mm-hmm.
0: When you're doing a story, have there ever been moments where you just suddenly find yourself so emotionally attached to the subject? And this, oh yeah, where where oh, it's yeah. just racking you personally, where and deeply oh, yeah. affecting no, you in a it's... way that perhaps other many other stories or most other stories haven't. And why Look, is that? I like mean, what about what what are the stories well,
1: that resonate the most I mean, with you? First of all, okay. First of all, if you're not feeling anything, you can't be a reporter. Mm-hmm. I mean, reporting is feeling. Like you know, AI is not going to work in this job. Um, that's one good piece of good news. Mm-hmm. As a journalist, you got to maintain some sort of emotional, you know distance and some balance from the people that you're interviewing. But the story, you spend a lot of time with these people in this mm-hmm. job. like these interviews take two, three, four hours sometimes, and you spend like the whole day with them. sometimes you spend a couple of days with them. and and your producers have spent even more time with that family. So you guys are, I mean we're still in touch, I'm still in touch years later with people that I did stories about just because of all the time we spent together and the details that they shared about the worst thing that ever happened to them. And if you don't feel terrible about that, right. Um, then you're failing as a journalist because Mm -hmm. you're not yet. I mean, and if you're not feeling terrible about that, you should be examining either whether you belong in journalism or second, whether that person's telling the truth, Mm -hmm. you know, because some people will tell you how miserable they feel. You think like, "I'm, I'm not sure you're being straight with me here. Um, you know, there's a desire to sort of uh, whitewash people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they never did anything wrong. You know, they lit up the room. They uh, they would give you the shirt off their back. They never met anybody who wasn't a friend, you know. Well, not everybody's like that. Most people are not like that. Most people have different facets to themselves. Like the woman we're doing on the next Dateline, line. Ildika was her name. She was from, she was from Hungary. Um, you know, she was beloved by her her family. And she was beloved by her son. Um and many men also wanted to love her, and uh, clearly there was some kind of competition. Um, and she was sometimes nice to them, sometimes not. Sometimes mercenary. She was trying to figure out the best deal in life for herself and her kid. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, uh, nobody's perfect. Right. And if if somebody's being portrayed as perfect, then they're probably being portrayed dishonestly. But the answer to your question, you know, does this affect you? Yeah, it mm-hmm. does there are times when you want to start crying right when they start crying but obviously you can't do that you know this is not a self-help encounter session this is journalism right so you got to find some distance in between breaking down when they break down and then saying then hey come on back to earth let's go right like stop you know pull yourself together you can't do that either mm-hmm. so you got to find some 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 place in the middle but you know do i think about these stories afterwards oh yeah i mean mm-hmm. i think of them I mean, I'm, you know, I talked to a couple of these moms last week, people that I'm, whose stories I am no longer covering.
0: One of the things I love to do on this pod, it's just like a personal challenge of mine, is to figure out a way to meaningfully connect Taylor Swift, a cultural icon, into the conversation yeah. with no matter who I'm talking to. And
1: so. This is incredibly, extremely easy to do for us. Because there was an interview that she gave a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. a video interview. Maybe you know about this. Yep. Uh, I didn't. That's where I'm going. Uh, in which they said it was like like 60 questions in 60 seconds mm-hmm. or something like that. There was all little quick questions and answers like, you know, favorite flower, favorite food, best day of the week, best sandwich. And they said to her, favorite TV show. And she said, Date, date line. line. Yep. Yes. Was um, that a shock? So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in part because I at the time I thought of our audience as being older than that. Mm-hmm. Um but uh but hey, uh she's obviously uh she's got a wonderful taste. And you got to get um, her to
0: do like an Instagram post on Dateline. Oh, sweet.
1: Yeah, no no, <laughs> I, that, that's, that is what we need. We need to Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you and
0: Morrison, you're you're I I online I saw you guys referred to as the Dateline Daddies, which uh, I found really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, and uh, there's this, like, fun rivalry between you two. He tweeted something recently where he said you can check out the podcast, the new podcast, and yeah, you can right. check out all the episodes, even oh. Josh's. So, like... Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. even Josh's, he said. Yeah. Well, see, um, but you're...
0: Yeah. I, I got to say, your voice, to me, is, like, in a way, way cooler than his. because wow. you, you, you you hear you, that? You have, hear that, Keith? <laughs> You have, I mean, I love Keith and I love his voice, but there's this like nasally pothead thing you got going on. You know, like that's, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing like the guy who's just stoned.
1: Nasal, nasal I've heard, (laughs) pothead I've not heard. I was in another network before years ago. I won't identify it. I just give you the initials ABC. Mm. And I was just starting out as a correspondent. This was in 1982. And they wanted to change my voice. They wanted me to sound like every other sort of FM broadcaster. And they sent me to this voice coach in New York who was the the industry standard at the time. And she was very expensive. And also, like, they flew me to New York for this, too. So that that added to the amount of money they were spending. But she was not cheap, I know. And I would—and she was trying to—she was trying to get me to talk like everyone else. And I tried because I was brand new and I wanted them to like me. But it just didn't take— and I used to go to New York and I would go to her office and I would sit in her outer office while, and, and when I'd get there, I could hear her in her little inner sanctum yelling at the person who had the appointment right before me. Right? Um, and it was all like, this is terrible. Right? <laughs> I would hear, hear, her, hear her like <laughs> excoriating someone. And I would sit there in the outer office and floor to ceiling on the wall were headshots of of people from local news, network news, commercials, Broadway, TV shows, movies, uh, captains of industry. I remember Lee Iacocca was up there, politicians, George Bush, the older was there. And they'd all written some version of the same thing on their photo, which was, without you, this would have been impossible, right? Uh, and I used to sit there on Lillian's couch, and I would think, I'm not gonna be up there. This isn't gonna work. And it didn't work, and I wasn't up there. And now I'm glad.
0: Mm-hmm. But your voice is partly why you're where you are. It's just perfect for dating life. And uh, I love the rivalry thing.
1: Um, That's good. Well, well, Keith, let me just say, the rivalry thing is uh, is mostly my creation because I started, you know, he's he's very shy. And so I started sort of teasing him about stuff, both when we would do these appearances together and then also, you know, online. And he's like the sweetest guy. I mean, everybody is, you know, he's, he's one of those people on TV that you never hear anything bad from and you never hear anything bad about. Mm-hmm. Um, like Did he like the
0: uh, the Bill Hader impression? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, he told, told me at the time, he's like, he's like, what do you think of that? I mean, is that something I should be happy about? I'm like, yeah, like, it's great. And he said, my kids keep playing it and playing it and playing it and laughing. And uh, it he goes, so awesome. it's a good thing. I'm like, yeah, it's wonderful, it's the coolest thing ever. Um, are you waiting for I the uh, Josh Hader Mankiewicz did... character on, on SNL? It, it, it's never made it on SNL, but you know, Hader did a great imitation of me on Kimmel. Um, oh, I have uh, to which, find uh, that. Oh, yeah, I oh, don't know, look that up. It's uh, Kimmel says to him, it's a couple years ago before pandemic, and he says, um, what are your most obscure impressions? That's what it is. Hmm. And Hader says, well, uh, you guys watch Dateline, and the audience cheers and then he does Keith, which a lot of people do. And then he does me, which he was very good at, and then he does Dennis. Oh, who wow. I would have thought. He went deep. be imitated. He went deep, but he was perfect. It was great. So wow. yeah, if i ever meet Hader, I'm going to thank him. Uh but yeah, uh, Keith is uh pretty tolerant of my my teasing of him.
0: And so you're getting heavily into podcasting. How do you feel about that? Are you yeah. enjoying that process?
1: I am enjoying it. I uh you know, we were kind of late to the podcast table, but mm-hmm. we certainly made up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, we get the, I mean, true crime is a huge, huge part of podcasting. We have the biggest name in true crime. We should have been doing this from the beginning. Um, we got a big audience out there. I'm surprised constantly by the number of people who consume Dateline by listening to the podcast instead of watching the TV program, even though it's the TV program that spawned all mm-hmm. of this. Uh, but a lot of I talk to a lot of people who say no no I don't see your stories I I listen to them. Um what about so, crossover? Do you have any uh,
0: stats on like
1: how many people are are both watching the show and listening? I know that our bosses just went to a meeting the other day in which all of this stuff was rolled out for them. Um uh the one thing and I wasn't there because I'm not allowed to receive any of that information because I'll blurt it out on somebody else's podcast. <laughs> uh but uh Oh I'd hate that. But yeah, we can't have that. No. Uh, the one thing I, I, I did learn was that uh, the podcast audience is significantly younger than the TV audience. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of detail that makes a- advertisers salivate.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh,
1: um, so my guess is that, that that's one reason why we're so big into audio. And also, look, I mean, we are storytellers. This is a great way of telling a story. Sure. You know, I mean, a podcast, as you know, I mean, a podcast can be as long as it needs to be. And when we're doing a true crime podcast, an original one, not a, not a uh, not the audio of a Dateline episode, but the but the, the Keith and I have both done original ones, mm-hmm. and we're going to continue doing that. These are like five six hours long, mm-hmm. so these are like five or six Dateline episodes back to back, and all the rules that exist in TV don't exist in podcasts. Like you know, in TV, if you if you've written Right, you don't need talent on a podcast, uh, damn right. That's the thing <laughs> I'm counting on. Uh, but you know, like in podcasts, in TV, you write 40 seconds of copy, right? Right, narration. You, uh, you, you, if you're a TV reporter, the way I've been for all these years, you, the, your first thought is, Well, that's too long. I can make that shorter, right? Not in a podcast, you m- make it better, make it, make it, more, make it more compelling, maybe make it longer sure. and then let it go. Yeah. That's the. That's the thing that that, that that works is that you know the stories are told in much greater depth mm-hmm. um, on podcasts, and you know you can consume them anywhere. You don't have to be sitting in front of your television set. So people who who commute or who mm-hmm. want to you know are walking the dog or cooking or whatever. Well, I mean, so, what do you right? think of the the top three to
0: five crime cases with the greatest cultural impact on America?
1: Well, um, OJ mm-hmm. certainly you know, hit a lot of touchstones because it was about the way the criminal justice system operates. It was about domestic violence. It was about interracial marriage. It was about the, the role of money. It was about the relationship of the police department to the people that get policed. It was about the treatment given to celebrities. I mean, it was, it was about a lot of stuff. Um, it's one reason why everybody paid. It was a soap opera and it was a famous person being put on trial. That's mm-hmm. another one. Michael Jackson. I mean, you know, when maybe the most famous entertainer in the world is accused of unspeakable crimes, that's a uh, that's a pretty big story. Uh, nobody'd heard of John Benet now mm-hmm. before, I don't think, but certainly everybody did after uh, Jody Arias. Mm-hmm. I was um, I was assigned to cover the Jody Arias case in in Phoenix, and when I got there that day, the trial was still going on. I got to the courthouse. And there was a line coming out the door onto the sidewalk of people who wanted to get in the courtroom. And I randomly talked with a couple of women who were uh, waiting in line. And they worked for an insurance company in Wisconsin. And they had taken a week of vacation to come to Phoenix and watch the trial because they'd seen it on Court TV. And they wanted to go. Mm. And that's when I thought to myself, oh, this is... The, 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 there's something going on here that it's I business not here. picked up on up till. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, these, this is, this has got a reach that I didn't realize. So certainly that, um, as I said, I mean, JFK is like the the, the first true crime case that everybody had a big opinion about mm-hmm. in, in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, Lindbergh was all over the papers. Sure. Um, you know, uh, those are some of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Casey Anthony in right. Florida, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was huge, and now more recently, two stories in Idaho: the Vallows and Daybells, and also the students who were killed in the house. And uh, those are both Keith stories, but mm-hmm. uh, they've generated the tremendous. Oh nationwide. really? That's my Keith. Yeah. Oh really? <laughs> you know, and Murdoch. I mean, people were stopping right. me in airports to That's say, a crazy "To story. say what's gonna what's gonna happen with that?" And I was like, "You know, this was like a year ago, a couple of years ago." I'm like, man, nah, I'm I so glad know. they denied a him
0: a, a new trial. That
1: would have been yeah, a travesty yeah. of justice. We we did a story a couple of weeks ago. Oh, this is a huge story. The one in the in Florida, the Adelson's, the family of killer dentists, which a dispute over like literally an, a mundane thing. Who was going to get custody of the kids mm-hmm. uh, ended up wrecking two families, murdering somebody, putting the people insanity. in prison for life. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. And it's not over. It's like this this breaking wave of insanity that just continues to unfold. Uh That's a a, a perfect example of people who lost all sight of proportion. Like, you think these kids that you care so much about, they're not going to care that their dad got killed? Like, they're going to be just fine? You take their father away like that? And then bit by bit, other members of their family start, you know, getting locked up? What are you, out of your minds? Um it, it's insane. Well, it it's is, like the it it's insane.
0: you know the, the Menendez brothers, you know, they killed their parents. Their parents get shot to death. And then somehow in the next few days, these guys are driving fancy cars and wearing Rolexes. It's like they think no one's
1: going to be like, wait a second, you know, that doesn't yeah. look right. Um, there's a huge debate over that case now as, yeah. to, as to whether that second trial was fair or not. But I mean, look at Scott Peterson, you know. Right. I mean, I thought that was cut and dried. I didn't cover that either, but I, I thought that one was cut the and dried. The Innocence now, Project
0: uh, is behind that. That's right? Well, crazy. The, the
1: L.A. Innocence Project, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing as the National Innocence Project, mm-hmm. but it's a, they claim, and they're not saying what it is, mm-hmm. they claim that there is new uh, possibly exculpatory information available. We don't know what that is at right. this point. So as we wrap up here, Josh, you got your episode coming up this Friday. 9 p.m., Eastern and Pacific 8 p.m Central on your local NBC station and then it will be available as a podcast and streaming on peacock probably over the weekend
0: all right well I'll be watching and hopefully a lot of other folks will be too Josh you've been very generous with your time this was really Thank interesting you so much. helping us understand uh, the behind the scenes at Dateline and uh hope you come back and do this again sometime
1: love to thanks so much alrighty take care
0: This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood and your own backyards and have a great week.